We're still in that exchange between Jesus and the Jewish Pharisee named Nicodemus. John 3, 9 through 21, that's on page 888 in the Pew Bibles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, as we approach your word this morning, as always, we ask for the clear, illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see your truth in Scripture. Father, give us eyes to see the reality that you show us in your revelation, your inspired word. And Father, help us to take the truth that you show us and apply it in our lives. We want to grow. We want to uh, increase in, in our knowledge and in our practice and our living for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Some games are simple, like tic-tac-toe. It, it really doesn't get much more simple than that. There's only two players. Uh, there's, no, there's no board. There are no dice. There, there's no instruction sheet with all, a bunch of rules. You simply draw a grid and place your mark. Uh, the whole thing is over in a matter of seconds. It's kind of difficult to lose track of whose turn it is when you're playing a simple game like tic-tac-toe. But other games are more difficult and complex. Some, some games have uh, multiple players that are involved, and, and each turn that each player takes has multiple steps and, and several actions that they need to take every time they take a turn. Other games are more complex. They, they require a lot of concentration uh, some kind of heavy-duty strategy games that, that require a lot of thinking, or maybe uh, an, a game of chess with someone who's about the same level as you are. That kind of requires uh, a lot of thinking, a lot of planning ahead, a lot of thinking about moves and, and different moves uh, several turns ahead. It's these more difficult and complex games that there's always a chance that a player might forget that it's their move. It happens. Maybe it's, it's happened to you. Maybe you've been playing a game and there's been so much time as the play goes around the board, by the time it gets to you, you're in conversation with somebody else and, and somebody has to give you an elbow. Or maybe you've, you've gotten up to go to the kitchen to get some, some food and somebody has to holler, hey, it's your turn, because you're away from the table. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, it's your move. He challenges this Jewish Pharisee who came to him by night. And of course, they're not playing a game. Jesus is talking about salvation. And he tells Nicodemus, it's his move. While no one may enter the kingdom of God without being born again, that was what he told him in the previous verses, Jesus makes it clear that no one will be saved unless they believe in Jesus. So this morning, we don't want to miss what God is telling us and showing us in this powerful, Christ-centered, evangelistic passage. Let's read it. John 3, 9 through 21. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But ever, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We're picking up this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, and we're picking up verse 9 that begins, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So let's review just a minute. What are the, these things that Nicodemus is talking about? It's the fact that Jesus told him, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are first born again. That's what Nicodemus, as a Jewish Pharisee, needed to hear. Nicodemus thought he was automatically in, in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, no, you must be born again. And verse 9 shows us Nicodemus was having difficulty understanding this. He was having difficulty accepting this hard teaching from Jesus about being born again. How can these things be? And in verse 10, Jesus responds with a rebuke. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And once again, our faithful ESV comes through with a solid translation. Jesus is not just saying, you are a teacher of Israel, or you are one of the teachers of Israel. No, the definite article is present in the original language. He's saying, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? the teacher of Israel. By this statement, Jesus tells us Nicodemus was a recognized master. He was at the top. He was, could very well have been the most recognized teacher in Jerusalem and in, and in Israel at the time. The teacher of Israel. And you don't understand these things that I'm trying to tell you? Jesus is calling him out. And he's saying, look, Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel, and you don't know that Scripture teaches the necessity of spiritual rebirth by the power of God. 
You, the teacher of Israel who has been teaching for years, you, the teacher of Israel who has studied the scriptures his entire life, don't realize that a spiritual rebirth is necessary? So Jesus is calling him out. Let's look at just a couple of passages from the Old Testament. These are scriptures that Nicodemus would have had access to. Psalm 14.2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. So this passage teaches us no one is inherently good. Everyone is turned away. No one seeks after God on their own, on their own initiative. Jeremiah 2.22, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. No one can clean themselves up. No one can make themselves right before God. And then Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26 and 29, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. You could hear the repetition of the I, I, I. It's a work of God. God gives people the ability to follow him. God gives people the, the new heart, the spiritual rebirth that allows them to obey his word. God brings about heart change and spiritual Rebirth. So Jesus is pointing out to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, hey, you shouldn't be completely clueless to these things. You're saying it's difficult to understand. You're saying that you're questioning how these things can be. But if you study the scriptures, they're there. They're all over the place in scripture. And then verse 11 gives us another truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If you recall, the truly, truly statements are a Gospel of John distinctive. They're not in the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have any of these truly, truly, I say to you statements. They're only in John. They're always at the beginning of a sentence. They're, they're always spoken by Jesus and they always point to some spiritual truth that Jesus wants his listeners to reflect upon and consider very carefully. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Well, who is the we in this statement and who's the you in this statement? First, the we. There have been all kinds of suggestions. Some have thought the we refers to Jesus and John the Baptist. Others say it refers to Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. Others say it refers to Jesus and all those who have been born again by the Spirit. Still others say, no, no, this is just Jesus by himself, and he just happens to be referring to himself in the plural. And then others say Jesus is referring to himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. 
And while I can see valid, ar- valid arguments for, for some of those, those uh, positions, I fall on the last one. I believe Jesus is using the plural to talk about the Godhead. We see this other place in Scripture, Genesis 1.26, for example, comes to mind, where God says, let us make man in our image, where God is speaking in the plural, talking about the Godhead. Here, Jesus is speaking authoritatively as part of the Godhead. So when we see the word we, he's saying this, this is coming from the, the triune God. The you is plural. And you might have a footnote in your Bible that indicates that it's a plural. So it's not just Nicodemus, but all people. So let's put this all together. The truly, truly statement in verse 11 is saying this. Jesus is giving divine truth. Jesus is giving revelation directly from God to all people. But all people are not receiving it and not accepting it apart from being born again and the power of God. And this dovetails perfectly with what Jesus has been telling Nicodemus from the very beginning of chapter 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. And also no one will accept the things of God unless one is born again. There has to be an initial work of God. Verse 12 says, If I told you earthly things, meaning regeneration, something that happens to us in, in this life, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And that's what he's going to lay out in the next few verses that follow verse 12. His incarnation, his divinity, salvation through faith in Christ. And here's the first heavenly thing Jesus lays out in verse 13, his divinity. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except Jesus. Not Abraham, not Moses, not King David, nobody that has come before him. Only Jesus comes from heaven. Jesus is the only authorized sent one from above. He's the only one. And he reveals his saving redemptive purposes by way of an Old Testament comparison. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And we're going to see that Jesus uses that event to to show us that that the bronze snake pointed forward to and, and foreshadowed the work of Christ. So let's make sure we understand what that event was. Let's go back to Numbers 21. This is what, in verse 14, when... Jesus talks about the serpent in the wilderness. He's talking about Numbers 21, 4 through 9. So here it is. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. So this is during the wilderness wandering years, after the exodus, but before the conquest of the land. The people were wandering about in the wilderness for 40 years, and during that time they often grumbled. 
and often complained. So that's the, the background of this. But the, the point is the bronze serpent and the command to look to it and live. So Jesus is making a comparison between Moses and the serpent and himself. You can hear that language. As Moses lifted up, so must the Son of Man. He's trying to draw a parallel. So Jesus is telling us how to interpret this Old Testament passage. This is not allegorical preaching run amok. This is the Lord telling us, here's how I want you to understand this Old Testament passage. Numbers 21, 4 through 9 points to Jesus. Numbers 21, 4 through 9 points to and foreshadows his sacrifice and his work on the cross. Now, there may be other parallels, and I'm sure there are, but I want us to consider the following. The Israelites were in great physical danger because the poison in their bodies would kill them. Likewise, all people are in great spiritual danger because the poison of sin is in us and will, if left unaddressed, kill us. The bronze snake was lifted up on a pole publicly for all to see. Jesus was lifted up on a cross publicly for all to see. The bronze snake was an image of the thing that had poisoned them. Jesus, the New Testament says, was made to be sin, the thing that has poisoned us. The bronze snake itself had no poison, and Jesus himself had no sin. The Israelites had to look to the snake and they would live. People must look to Jesus and we will live. However sick and however close an Israelite was to death, looking to the snake resulted in full and complete healing. Likewise, however great our sin is, however long we have lived apart from God's grace, looking to Jesus on the cross results in immediate and complete forgiveness of sins and the granting of eternal life. God's instructions were specific. A look to Moses or to the tabernacle or to the altar or even the pole upon which the snake was positioned upon would not result in healing. They had to look at the snake alone. Likewise, God's instructions for our salvation remain specific. We cannot look to religious leaders, other historical saints, We cannot look to church traditions or our own good works, any kind of man-made religion. We must look to Jesus alone in faith, and only by looking to him are we saved. Jesus is telling us, Numbers 21 is talking about him. Verse 15, whoever believes, whoever believes in him, may have eternal life. This was another piece of shocking information to Nicodemus. Whoever believes, did I hear you right, Jesus? Whoever, so not just Israel, whoever believes? Yes, that's correct. Well, what about me? I'm a Jewish Pharisee. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm the son of Abraham. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now this may very well be 
the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. This, this is the verse that gets held up on the signs at the professional sports games. This is the verse that a lot of us may have been taught as a child. This, this is the verse that several uh, of us may have learned as the first verse we've ever memorized. It's a concise summary of the Christian faith. We need to take our time to unpack it. For God so loved the world. Let's start there. Many Reformed teachers have made an effort to, to say, well, when it says God so loved the world, he doesn't really mean everybody. He's really talking about the elect. I can understand why they would try to make that argument, but it, it just doesn't work. Um, when the Bible uses the word world, sometimes it does refer to all unbelievers. Uh, sometimes it refers to the world system. Um, sometimes it refers to simply the planet, Earth, the world. But it never refers to the elect. There is no place in the entire Bible where God uses the word world to describe his elect people. So in this verse, it also means everybody. It means believer and unbeliever. It means Jew, Gentile. It means elect and non-elect. Everybody. This is, this is who God loves. The love that is described here then, of course, is not the unique covenantal love that he sets on his own people, but it is a general, universal, compassionate, real love that God has for all of his image bearers. But look at what follows in the statement next. The statement right after God so loved the world, it says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. In fact, it's repeated. Let's look at verse 15 and 16. It says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then immediately after, in the next verse, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So two things stand out from these, these parallel verses. First of all, I hope we can all see the theme of this entire series. Jesus plus belief equals life. It really is just that simple. We've got it two times right in a row. Believe in Jesus' life. Believe in Jesus' life. This is the purpose of the book. This is why John wrote the Gospel of John. He wants people to believe in Jesus and have life. So here's our serious theme. But second of all, John 3.16 teaches us this. As powerful and as perfect and as far-reaching as the love of God is, no one will be saved unless they believe in Jesus. Yes, God loves the entire world. Yes, God loves all his image bearers, but no one will be saved unless they believe in the Son. In other words, no one is going to be saved unless they make a move. And that move is believing in Jesus. That move has to be made. The unbeliever says, well, God loves me. This, this verse proves it. God loves the world. God loves me, so I don't have anything to worry about when I die. I'm good to go. Again, half of that is correct. Yes, it is true. God does love you. He loves all people. So much that he sent his son to provide a way for you to escape the wrath of God that you rightly deserve. He loves you that much. 
to send his son so that you don't have to die in your sins. He loves you that much. None will go to heaven unless they repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It says, whoever believes has life. Whoever does not believe does not have life. Well, once again, we might have a a hand of objection raised. Somebody says, okay, hold on a second. I've heard you preach before, Pastor. Um, Not so fast. I've heard you say that only the elect are saved. I've heard you say that it's only those who have been predestined for salvation. Those are the people who are saved. Now you're telling me whoever believes? First of all, thanks for listening. That's correct. Second of all, yes, it's both. It's both. Look what Jesus is telling us. It's both. He just told Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. That's 100% a work of God. We have nothing to do with that. We are completely passive. That is a work of God that is done without any involvement from us. That's true. And then almost in the same breath, he tells Nicodemus, you must believe. They're both true. The fact that God has elected some for salvation and not others is true. The Bible Bible plainly teaches this. But we do not know who is among the elect. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. Only God knows who the elect are. And that is why the church proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ to every single person with the same level of evangelistic zeal. We don't know who the elect are. We can't make that call. What we do know is that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Do you see how these two things interact? It's not an either or, it's a both and. J.C. Ryle, 19th century churchman, says this, Salvation does not turn on the point, did Christ die for me? But on the point, do I believe on Christ? Everyone has to make a move and believe in Jesus. Have you made that move? Have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? That move must be made. Verse 17 and 18, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Once again, the unbeliever might read this verse and say, well, uh, this is what I thought all along. The message of Christianity is a message of love and tolerance, and he judges no one. And it says here that the whole world will be saved. So I don't think I have anything to worry about. Jesus isn't going to judge anyone. To that I would reply, um, this does not mean that Jesus will not judge anyone. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus will judge everyone. Uh, John 5.22 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. James 5.8-9 says, The coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Judge is capitalized because it's referring to Jesus. Jesus is known as the judge. So yes, Jesus will be judging everyone. It also does not mean that the whole world will be saved. The very next verse confirms this for us. If we would just keep reading context. Verse 17 is telling us that at Jesus' first advent or his first coming, 
He came to open the door. He came to do the work that makes it possible for people to put their faith in God, in Christ, so that they can be saved. The way of salvation would be open to whoever believes in him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned. Condemned here means um, under the condemnation of sin, um, guilty, uh, cursed, under the curse of sin. Whoever believes in him is not all those things. It means their sin is forgiven, pardoned, declared innocent in God's sight, justified. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see how John just, it's like a big U-turn. He just, it just keeps turning around to Jesus. It keeps coming back to Jesus. Wherever direction you head, it's back to Jesus. This, this is the point. This is the fulcrum. This is the hinge upon which everything changes. Everything hangs upon it. Everything balances on it. It's Jesus. Belief in Jesus. Whoever believes has their sins taken away. Whoever does not believe has all their sins remaining upon them. And then verses 19 through 21 are the last few verses of our passage. They, they're where John uses light and dark to illustrate what he's just said before these last verses. So he says, this is the judgment. In other words, this is how it works. The light has come into the world. That light is Jesus. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And our first thought is thinking, well, I'm not sure about that. And even maybe as an unbeliever, you say, well, I don't hate the light. What he's talking about is those that live apart from Christ in their heart saying, I don't want to believe in Jesus. I don't want to come into the light. Because that means I have to give up my my sin. That means I have to give up my life if I come to Jesus. I don't want to start to live my life according to the Bible. That's not attractive to me at all. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. That's what that verse is talking about. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Once again, this is the unbeliever. The unbeliever does not want to hear the truth that they are an unforgiven sinner. The unbeliever does not want to hear that they're not good. The unbeliever wants to hear that they are good, at least good enough. They don't want to be told that they are coming under judgment for their sin, that the way they live their life or the things they do in their life are morally wrong. They don't want to hear that. So they don't come to Christ. They stay a comfortable distance away from him. How does an unbeliever stay a comfortable distance away from the light in 2023. It's actually very easy in our culture today. Now, it may have been more difficult in times past when the things of God and were just assumed and when our culture, the, the kind of warp and woof of our, our, the fabric of our culture just kind of automatically included an acknowledgement of the church and the Lord and, the, and judgment and things like that. Not anymore. So it's very easy to stay away from the light. All you have to do is not open the Bible and not attend a Bible-believing church. That's it. 
it's extremely easy to stay out of the light. You will not find the light at work in your HR policies. You will not find the light in the media or entertainment. You will not find the light at the gas station or at the grocery store. It's just not there. You won't read about it or hear about it on the news. It's very easy to stay away from the light in 2023. You could even go to church and stay away from the light. There are a lot of churches today still that, that don't speak of and bring the truth, the light of Christ. You, you could go to church and you could sit under mess talks, let's call them talks, about being more compassionate or loving your spouse more or getting a hold of your finances or becoming a better person or um, raising your kids or being a better parent or finding balance in your life or, I mean, you fill in the blank. It's a Christ-less message. It's still possible to be in a church and stay out of the light. He says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this isn't talking about somebody saying, well, I'm going to come into the light so that I can show off my good works. Everybody look, now I'm in the light. See, everything I'm doing is, is good. That's not what he's saying. I can see how it can be taken that way, but that's not it. What he's saying is the right response to the light is to come to it. The right response to Jesus being presented is to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus. And once in the light, it is shown that anything good that we do, all our good works are done in Christ and through the power of Christ working through us. That's what he's talking about. The title of this message is Your Move. We could summarize this passage by saying Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he should not be surprised to hear spiritual rebirth by the power of God is necessary because it is revealed in the Old Testament scripture. Jesus goes on to assert his divine authority and explain the universal necessity of belief in him for salvation. Jesus uses the Old Testament example of Moses and the bronze snake, but he spends most of his time contrasting those who believe in the Son and those who do not believe in the Son using opposite word pairs such as perish and eternal life, condemned and saved, darkness and light. Whoever believes in the Son will be saved. Whoever does not believe in the Son will not be saved. We remember that when we approach a passage of scripture, it is written for us, but it has not been written to us. The Apostle Paul, writing the letter to 1 Corinthians, wrote it to them, not to us. It is still for us, but he wrote it to them. In the same way, this conversation, these words of Jesus Christ were to Nicodemus. They're for us, but they were to him. So let's think about that context for just a moment. These words from Jesus to Nicodemus were a challenge. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, hoping to have some conversation. We never really find out what Nicodemus wanted to talk to Jesus about. Did you notice that? He, he starts off by that, that kind of generous compliment, but then Jesus takes control of the, the conversation and, and he never looks back. We don't really know what Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus about that night, but we do know that Jesus saw into this man's heart and saw that his greatest need was to hear these words. You, Nicodemus, need to be born again, and you, Nicodemus, need to believe in me. Or else you're not, you're not forgiven. You won't see the kingdom of God. 
This was a challenge. Come to light or stay in the darkness. Believe or remain in unbelief. In other words, Nicodemus was being challenged. Jesus was telling him, it's your move. It's your move, Nicodemus. I've laid it out for you. So in the spirit of that original context, we need to understand this passage for what it is. God presents Jesus to everyone and says, it's your move. It's a challenging passage. Now, for believers, John 3.16 is one of the shortest, uh, most concise summaries of the Christian faith. Uh, We want to confess this. We want to, to believe this. We want to proclaim this. And we do. I would say for the vast majority of us here this morning, we do confess it. We do believe it. Amen. Praise God to John 3.16. We love this verse, and rightly so. This is primarily an evangelistic message. This is primarily a challenge passage. But for us, I don't want to completely skip over this. I think an appropriate application for believers, for those who are already in Christ, we need to understand the interplay between what's going on, what was said. You need to be born again, and you need to believe. And so I don't want us as believers to ever let the doctrine of election, as good Reformed Presbyterians, I don't want us to ever let the doctrine of election get in the way of proclaiming the good news to all people. We don't know who the elect are. No matter how someone, no matter how lost someone might seem to us, no matter how far down the path of sin they've gone, no matter if it seems like they've been completely given over to sin, we cannot look at them and say, well, they're probably not among the elect. I guess I'm not going to really waste my time and share the good news with them. We don't know. People may have thought the same thing about the Apostle Paul. He was pretty far down the road. He was actively persecuting the church. So we don't want the doctrine of election to ever get in the way of our um, proclamation of the word. And and if somebody's on the fence, kind of just here this morning, dipping their toe in Christianity, still trying to figure things out, I don't want the doctrine of election to ever get in your way of believing in Jesus Christ. I don't want anyone to ever sit back in the the lazy boy and say, well, you know, doctrine of election, if God wants to call me, he'll make that really plain to me. Um, I'm expecting something pretty big to let me know that I'm among the elect, and until then, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. That's, that's not the path that God wants for anybody. It says, whoever believes in him has eternal life. We have to make a move. So let's not let the doctrine of election get in the way of what uh, Scripture teaches as far as our responsibility, either in proclaiming or believing. But I do want to make a couple evangelistic applications because that's where the thrust of this passage is. This is a challenge passage, It's challenging people to make a move. So first of all, to unbelievers, if anyone's here not in Christ, if you've not yet committed to following Jesus Christ, this passage calls you to make your move. Make your move. Will you come to the light? Or will you remain in darkness? Will you repent and believe in Jesus? Or will you continue to stay away from the light? Have you ever played a a game where a long time ago the instruction booklet was lost and and you just kind of played on your own? Or maybe you you learned how to play from somebody else who didn't know exactly how to play. You kind of played by house rules and 
and it was a lot of fun still, and you, you got a lot of enjoyment out of the game, but after a while, that's, that's all you knew. And then all of a sudden, you went to someone's house where they did have the instructions, and all of a sudden, you were playing by the rules, and it made a huge difference. It was a game changer to actually play by the rules. I would challenge those outside of Christ, maybe up to this point you've been living your life according to something other than the Word of God. And this has impacted how you've thought about God, how you've thought about Jesus, the world, sin, salvation, heaven and hell. But now you've heard John 3.16 and following. You've been, you've been following along. And this is a game changer, as it should be. Maybe you've thought, well, God is love. I've heard that before. God is love. And so, of course, he loves me. I don't think anybody, or including myself, has anything to worry about. Um, because all people are loved by God. Uh, you would have to be really, 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 really bad to go to hell. Kind of like Hitler bad. So um, I don't think I have anything to worry about. Well, with this kind of thinking, um, someone would have to take several colossal evil moves away from God, several successive evil moves away from God in order to deserve the wrath of God. But the reality is, because we're all born with sinful natures, we're all objects of God's wrath. That's our default state. So the reality is, we don't have to make any moves away from God. The only thing we have to do is not make the one move of belief in Jesus. That's a game changer, if you hadn't thought about it. Or maybe you, you know in your heart that salvation cannot be as simple or as universal as simply being alive and, and being loved by God. So you've sought to make yourself clean before God by living a good life or by living according to the, the golden rule, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Maybe you've just tried your hardest to be a nice person and you've thought that that was good enough. But Jesus' words here make it clear. It doesn't matter how many moves we make towards God on our own effort. We can't get to God on our own. We have to make the move of belief in Jesus. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, know that God has made his move. He has set forth Jesus before you. Jesus has gone to the cross. He has paid the ultimate penalty so that you do not have to die in your sins. He took that penalty for you. He took the wrath of God that all of us deserve upon himself. He has made his move. You must make your move and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to receive the benefits of Christ that he freely offers in the gospel. The second group I want to talk to this morning from an evangelistic standpoint are to covenant children. Those who have grown up in the church. Those who have been baptized as a child, been raised in a Christian household with one or more believing parents. But now you're no longer a little kid. Maybe you're in middle school. Maybe you're in high school. But, but you're no longer one of these. You're, you're one of these. Have you ever played a long game that requires a lot of concentration, 
and a lot of thinking and a lot of silence sitting there staring at the board and trying to figure things out. After one of these games, kind of like a really good long game of chess, you, you might find some people just kind of staring at the board for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden, the players kind of lose track whose turn it is. It's not uncommon for somebody after one of these long stare-down contests at the board to say, wait, whose turn is it? And the other person says, yours. Waiting on you. They'd forgotten. Likewise, when children grow up in a believing household with believing parents, there's a possibility that children can start to presume on their baptized status or upon the spiritual safety of a, of a Christian household. Children who grow up believing uh, in a believing household can kind of, in a sense, lose track of whose turn it, in it is or whose turn it is to make a move. And I want you to know, God has made his move. God has made his move, first of all, by placing you and allowing you to be born into a Christian household. The, the things that we have no control over are called sovereign foundations. Who our parents are, when we're born in, in history, where we're born, what country. We have no control over those things. God does. He has sovereignly placed you in this family, in this time, in this country, and he has placed you in a believing household. He's made that move. God has also made his move in, at baptism, he has extended the gospel promises to you. He has made you by birthright a visible member of his covenant community, a baptized member of the church. And he's extended the promises, that promise to, to everyone that, it, that God promises to give you the righteousness of Christ if you believe in him. He's made his move. If you're a baptized member of Peace Community Church, Middle school or high school, are you listening? If you're a baptized member of Peace Community Church, it's your turn to make your move. Your parents' faith will not save you. Belonging to a Christian family will not save you. Going to church will not save you. You must make the move of personal belief in Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus, then make your move. Make a profession of faith in Christ. Come before the elders, be admitted to the Lord's table. If you're a believer, that's where you belong. In the end, Jesus challenged an extremely religious man named Nicodemus to make his move. Jesus still challenges people today to make their move. Darkness or light. Belief, unbelief. Eternal perishing or eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior Jesus. We thank you for electing us, calling us, and giving us the ability to respond to the gospel. Father, we thank you for the door, for the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. And although we fully confess and, and joyfully acknowledge and celebrate your sovereignty and your decrees and your election, we also recognize that you call each one of us to believe in the Son of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.